morning. So if you would, go ahead and find John chapter number 6. John chapter number 6. And then if you have a copy of the Confession of Faith, we're going to be looking at the second half of paragraph 4 this morning. So John chapter 6, and then the second half of paragraph 4, chapter 10 of the Confession of Effectual Calling. So this morning we're going to consider the expression drawn by the Father. Uh, paragraph 4 is in many ways a, uh, a summation of what the entirety of the chapter has dealt with. Although it specifically deals with those who have not been effectually drawn. So we'll see that here in our confession here in just a moment. But let's begin with John 6 beginning there in verse 37. It says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Now I want you to drop down with me for just our reading this morning down to verse number 64. And of course, there's a lot that takes place in between verse 45 and verse 64. But I want to draw our attention to something here. It says, but there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me, except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So we have this, uh, these words that, a couple of perspectives here. We have the perspective of something that is being necessarily implied. In other words, there are implications to the words in which Jesus is saying. These implications are implications that are expressed in a positive and in a negative way. Now again, positive and negative, uh, we've got to avoid trying to humanize this so much that when God speaks of something positive, God speaks of something negative, uh, we've got to kind of drive out the thought of uh, trying to think it through human terms. But the implication here that's being implied and the positive expression that God is giving us through Jesus' words here is he's describing the misery of man in his natural unregenerate state. So it's necessarily implied that without saying it, man is in a miserable state in his unconverted condition. That's the implication. What's being positively expressed or positively given is the fact that even though this man is distant from Christ, even though this man is unable to come to Christ by himself, 
we see that there is this positive expression that there are those who do in fact come unto Christ. So we see this implication of the misery of man, and yet we see that God has provided a way in which that man in that miserable, unregenerated state can actually come to Christ. So we know by nature we are strangers. By our human nature, apart from regenerating grace of Christ, we are in fact strangers and enemies. The Bible tells us that we are the enemies of God until we come unto Him and until we have our natural state changed. So we understand that when we came to Christ, we came to Christ with an understanding that there were His laws, there was His righteousness, and we began to realize that our state of unregeneracy and being in an unregenerate state was a state of enemy. So to be unregenerate is to be in a state of being the enemy of God. So consequently, if we are an enemy, then in our natural unregenerate state, then we are without the possibility of coming to Christ apart from his drawing. So he has to do the drawing. Now, what's interesting, and we've, we have gone over this, so we're not going to do a full exposition of John 6 all the way through all of these verses, but we notice that the drawing begins with the Father. That's what we see in verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Jesus, of course, is speaking and saying it is the Father who gives to the Son, and all that the Father gave to the Son, that individual will come to him. He doesn't leave any room for error here. He says that all that the Father has given to me, that individual is going to come to me. That is the effect of the effectual drawing and the effectual calling of Christ. And he says, I will no wise cast out. That's where we understand the belief is that no one who ever comes to Christ seeking to be saved is ever turned away. There's never been a time in human history that a person who truly wanted to be saved, wanted to be forgiven of their sins, who Christ said, I can't take you. He says, all that the Father gives me. So we understand that there is a necessary coming to Christ that is required here. Now, in the second half of paragraph 4 of chapter 10, we'll read the entirety of the paragraph again. It says, others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operation to the spirit. We dealt with that last week. But then there's the word yet yet not being effectually drawn by the Father. They neither will, notice this, nor can truly come to Christ, and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that receive not the Christian religion be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. Now, there's a lot it packaged in this. But we see that there is this connection between if a man is not effectually drawn by the Father, they will not nor can they truly come to Christ. And it clearly says they cannot be saved. But that's that last expression. Much less can men that receive not the Christian religion be saved, but be they never so diligent to frame their lives. It's impossible for a man or a woman to so frame their lives around the truths and the doctrines of Christianity that, that just doing that alone will bring them to Christ. In other words, they're not going to frame their life around the Christian religion with the idea that if I frame my life around Christianity, then that will automatically put me into the family of God. 
The reality is, is there is this effectual calling. There is this being drawn by the Father. We know in John 15, 5, it says, without me, you can do nothing. That was Christ's own words. And that's more than just in the common everyday life. We can do nothing specifically with regard to our own righteousness, specifically with regard to our own uh, salvation. But without Christ, we also, we really have no true interest in him. Unless we're drawn by the Father, Christ does not interest you. You know, we wonder why the world is not interested in Christ. We wonder why people are so hostile to the gospel. Because they have no interest in Christ. They have no interest in his righteousness. They have no interest in his laws. You're asking somebody with no interest to Christ to take an interest and come to a Christ they have no interest in. They have no desire to come to Christ. That's why the Lord himself, when he says, without me, you can do nothing. Without the influences of grace, man has no interest in Christ. So what are the truths that are being expressed here? Well, we see in these verses, first of all, that all those who come to Christ were drawn unto him. Okay, all those who come to Christ were drawn unto him. If you came to Christ, you were drawn unto him. You did not get to him by intellectual assent or by education or by framing your life around a system or a doctrine of morals. You came to Christ because you were effectually drawn to him. Secondly, Jesus is also expressing the truth that the drawing of sinful souls unto himself is a special and peculiar work of God. God does the work. This drawing, it indeed is a powerful act. It is something that has to be powerful, but it's not forced. It's not coerced. It's not deceptive. You are, you are not forced against your will. God does not draw any individual against their wills to Christ, but what he does do, in fact, is he inclines the will of that sinner to come to him. There is this inclining of the will. We could put it this way. He draws the sinner unto himself by effectual persuasion, not by violent compulsion. You can make a person follow someone by violence. You can force them in to that particular following. Thirdly, he's teaching that all of those who are in fact drawn to Christ will be raised up by the Father in the hereafter or in the later days. I will raise him up at the last day. Those who've been brought to Christ by the Father, Christ will never abandon them. Christ will never forsake them. He will never leave them until he has raised them up at the last day. And what he will do is he will present them blameless before the Father. They will not only be blameless, they'll be complete. To be complete in Christ. That is the ultimate goal in every Christian life is I'm going to be complete in Christ. I'm not complete yet. I'm saved, I'm regenerated, but I am not fully complete So in these words, between verses 37 and verse 44, we see Jesus expressing these great truths. In verse 45, the narrative changes just a bit. In verse 45, he says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. He begins to remind them that all that were drawn unto the Father... They have learned and will be taught and will accept the prophecies of the Old Testament, which spoke of the coming Messiah. 
In other words, we will have no problem receiving that truth. Today, being in Christ, I have no problem receiving all of the Old Testament prophecies. I have no problem believing they are all true. I have no problem understanding that every prophecy that was predicted has happened or will happen. I have no doubts about anything that the Scriptures declare. He says there's a connection between those who have been taught of God. Those who have been taught of God have heard God and they have learned the Father. And those, in fact, do come unto me. What are we to be taught of? We're to be taught of the things of God. We embrace Christ as the only means. We embrace Christ as the only way of salvation. And we do that without any hesitation. There is not a single doubt in my mind today as that salvation is found in Christ alone. I don't struggle with the reality of, is there really some other way? Maybe we're not hearing the whole story. Or maybe there is some other way to get to God. I realize and know 100% certainty that there is only one way to Christ. There's only one way to salvation. There's only one way. And so knowing that is having heard and being taught and being drawn by the Father. So everyone who comes to Christ, they're going to come not only come to Him, but they're going to believe in Him. Now this is important because of what I drew you to at the end of this particular passage when we're going to look at verse 64. Jesus himself puts his finger on somebody who says, here are people who claim to be mine, but they fell away. They withdrew from following me. We understand that the teachings in which Christ is giving us here are absolutely necessary that every person who comes to Christ must come in this way of faith. They will be taught, they will learn, they will know, and they will believe. But you'll notice again, let's drop over just to verse 64. We're going to introduce this and then we'll build on it. But there are some of you. Now this, this is not an implied. He's clearly saying there are some of you standing before me. He's not speaking in general terms that there are somebody a thousand miles from me. He's he's saying at that moment in the context, there are some of you who are standing right before me who believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Now, oftentimes this this gets pigeonholed into just meaning Judas. He means more than just Judas. He doesn't just mean Judas as the betrayer. He's talking about those who have claimed to follow me, but yet have withdrawn from me. Those are, in fact, to betray him. Those are ones who have claimed this faith and they've claimed to follow him. But as time went on and what we see in the in between from verse 45 down to verse 64, is we see Jesus gives the dissertation about being the bread of life. And he gives the teachings about being the living bread. And he uses the expressions about, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Talks about, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day. He says all these things. But then verse 60, but many therefore of his disciples. I want you to notice it's recognized that these are people who say his disciples. When they heard this, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, doth this offend you? Does the the fact that I'm the living bread offend you? 
Does the fact that you must eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, does that offend you? And of course, he says, you have no life in you if this offends you. Now again, in its human terms, that's an offensive thought. I mean, I don't know about you. I would assume this is the case. It's offensive to you to think on feeding on the flesh of a person. It's offensive to you to think about feeding on the blood of a person. I hope you're offended. If you're not offended at that, humanly speaking, I'm afraid of you. I'm frightened of you. For real, stay away. But he's not talking about that. Those who hear him, those who were of him, of his, knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew that he's not talking about physically partaking of my body. He's talking in the realm of taking him as the only way. What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you, again, that believe not. Verse 65, and he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of the Father. And here's the key. From that time, many of his disciples, notice they're pointed out as his disciples, went back and walked no more with him. Now, I know the human in us wants to say, well, at least they trusted in him, so at least they got to heaven. I would say that if it is they walked with him no more, is an indication they were never in him, and they turned. And to say, to try to calm our spirits by saying, well, at least they got saved that one time, you're putting a lot of faith in something that Jesus is saying exactly opposite of. To not walk with him anymore, to simply say, look, I don't, I'm not even going to be near him. And then he specifically, he says to the twelve, will ye also go away? Simon Peter, as his MO was, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Peter demonstrates it right there. Number one, why would we ever turn away from you and where would we go if we could? Now, many objections come and say, well, didn't Peter at one time turn away from God? He did, but he came back. These disciples, it says, they never walked with him again. See, we've, we've got in our human mind about what we think people really are and what people really do. And we think because there's been a profession of faith sometime in life, that that simply means they got it all taken care of and they're secure. I think that's a deadly teaching. I think it's deadly to give somebody the impression that if you will just simply acknowledge Christ today, if you'll simply pray this prayer that I'm giving to you and make no mention about walking with him after this point, I, pr- I think you preach a deadly doctrine. You're teaching a doctrine that's given somebody hope in their prayer. Jesus says this isn't the prayer, and it's interesting that the ones that were going away, he doesn't yell to them and say, hey, stop. Aren't you sure you want to reconsider whether you're leaving me or not? Yet he turns to the people that are still standing there and he says, are you also leaving? Now, he's not asking that because he needed to know the answer. He already knew. That's why it said he knew from the beginning who they were who would believe and those who wouldn't. He wasn't inquiring as to who else. He wasn't going down the line and saying, okay, I'm going to give you five more minutes. Go ahead and take off. You're going to take off. No, he knew. And Peter, as he answers the question, he says, we believe, and I love this, verse 69, and are sure. 
I love being able to stand before you this morning and to know I believe and know and I'm sure that Christ, the Son of the living God, I am certain of that today. You couldn't talk me out of my salvation no matter how good of a debater you are. You couldn't talk me out of it. Because I believe and I'm sure, I'm sure that Christ is the only way. You're not going to fool me with some false doctrine. Well, there's a lot of it out there. A lot of it sounds pretty appealing. Every other false doctrine sounds appealing because it appeals to your humanity. It appeals to your flesh in a positive way or a negative way. Either A, don't do this, and if you don't, you must be good, or it appeals to your flesh that you can actually do something good enough to gain acceptance with God. Every other religion in the world does that. Christ is the only one that says, it's all of me. It's all of me. You who are in Christ were effectually drawn by the Father or you wouldn't be here. And every single one that the Father has given me will come unto me and I will in no wise cast out. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. Now there's a lot of other words. Again, I'm not going to go against Scripture. There's a lot of other words that Jesus could have chosen. He uses the word devil. One of the twelve, he calls him a devil. He's identifying, I've chosen all twelve of you, and one of you is a devil. One of the great mysteries of, of God. He chose twelve, and he chooses his own betrayer, and he chooses his own devil in the, in the midst. It's remarkable to me. It's remarkable to me that Jesus, with all that he did and with all the disciples, again, humanly speaking, how in the world did Jesus endure that, knowing that within one of those 12, one of them was a devil? Because he was 100% submissive to the Father's will, and there was nothing that was going to remove him from what he came to do. All 12 of them could have been betrayers, and he still would have gone to the cross. He still would have bled and died for, for the sins of his people. He still would have been, his body would have been placed in the grave for three days. And he still would have rose again on the third day. And he still would have been seen by many witnesses. And he still would have ascended right back to the right hand of the Father where he is seated today. Nothing was going to change that. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, you and I are reading back history. It, we're not, it's not indicated, obviously, that he told them that the devil was Judas Iscariot. We're reading it as a past narrative. They didn't know at that moment who the devil was. He spake of Judas, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Remember, even from eternity past, it was chosen in the history of before time began that Judas would be the one. So we understand that these things teach us a little bit about not only what Christ was teaching, but understanding that he declares, Jesus declares, not only from his foreknowledge, but he declares these truths from his foreordination. Whatever men believe, whatever they accept, it is God's truth. The truth that God commands and teaches is that no man will nor can come to Christ or believe on Christ except he's drawn. Drawn, taught, called. 
supernaturally by the Spirit of God. In Acts 13.48, there's a reference made to this. Acts 13.48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. Hopefully you know this verse before I even finish it. And glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. There's been a lot of attempts to kind of push that verse away by many who just don't want to accept the fact that God has ordained who? Well, that seems unfair. That seems unrighteous. That seems unjust. Remember what we learned. God always does right. God always does right. This drawing of the Father is exercised according to what? Man's, what man does? Or is it exercised according to His sovereign will? Romans 9 verses 11-16 through 16 teaches us that the drawing of the Father is according to His sovereign will. There's a big difference in being drawn by your own desire and being drawn by His sovereign will. Remember, in my own interest, I have no interest in coming to Christ apart from His drawing me. So why were these disciples back in our text in John 6, verse 66, why were they so-called disciples? These are what would be referred to, and we see them throughout Scripture, these are what's often referred to as disciples at large. By the way, the most popular following in Christianity today is disciples at large. A general idea that I have an acknowledgement, I, I, have, I know a little bit about God, I go to church, I occasionally read a devotional, I occasionally read my Bible, I occasionally do this. Yeah, I'll, I'll stand up for Christian ideas and principles in the workplace, I'll stand up for them in the political process. They're disciples at large. They have a knowledge of God, but they have real no interest in Christ. There's a big difference in just saying you have an interest in God and you have an interest in Christ. There's a great interest in religious things. So we, have, we have this religious enlightenment that's going on all around the world. People are interested in religion. Folks, I'm not interested in religion. I'm not interested in what religion can bring you. Unless that religion is the religion that is the outflow of, of Jesus Christ. If it's not about Christ, it's a false religion. These disciples, they followed him for a while. Mostly just to hear what he would say. Partly to see his miracles. And partly, I believe, to see if they would do anything for them personally. A God who does stuff for you, that's a great theological word, isn't it? A God that does stuff for you is a God everybody wants a little piece of because God does good stuff for me. You try to tell someone they need Christ because he'll do good unto your life. He'll give you a good life. He'll give you happiness and contentment. That's not why you ask somebody and tell somebody and command someone to repent and believe the gospel is so that they'll have a good life. False professors, they draw back. But it's true that none who truly receive Christ will ultimately and completely fall away never to return again. We're going to read during our worship service this morning from 1 John 2, so I'm not going to read all of it today, but I do want to draw your attention to 1 John 2.19 for a minute. 
We're going to read a lot of this passage this morning, but John, as he wrote this, was writing about the the condition even then. And I always find this remarkable that in 1 John 2, verse 18, John is writing and, and instructing us to beware of Antichrist. He says, little children, I took notice of this again this morning, it is the last time. I always, I always want to remind us that John wrote these words so many years ago, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, he speaks now of one Antichrist there, but even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. The more Antichrists that begin to show up on the scene, it's how you'll know you're even closer to the end of the times. The more Antichrist propaganda you start to see, you'll know you're even closer. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Now, that, you cannot separate those two thoughts. They went out because they were not of Does everybody see that? There's a huge difference there. There's a reason they went out. This is not, they had something happen to them and then they left. No, they went out because they were never of us. Now this isn't about, contextually about church membership. It's not about hopping churches. It's not about anything like that. This is about being in Christ. You went out from us because you were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, notice it says that they might be made manifest. It will be revealed that they were not all of us, and they go out from you so that you'll be able to identify they were not of you. But ye have an unction from the Holy One. And ye know all things. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because ye know it and that no lie is of the truth. This is going to go right into the message this morning about putting away lying. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. There couldn't be a more clear passage of Scripture about who's in Christ and who's not. You might say, well, they did at one time. They accepted Christ. They acknowledged Christ. If they deny Him now, don't soothe your conscience by saying, well, at least they believed at one time. They would have continued. Now again, ultimately, there is backsliding. There are people who have had seasons where they've been away from the Lord, but they don't stay away forever. So what do we gain and what do we gain as far as understanding? A couple just application points that we'll be through. First of all, it is simply a matter of biblical fact that some people seem to respond to the gospel in a manner that falls short of salvation. We will always have people that will respond to the gospel with something that falls short. Some people reform part of their lives. The gospel is nothing more than, just use some examples, they stop drinking. Not all unbelievers drink, for example. That's not a sign that you're in Christ. 
You, you understand what I'm, you understand what I mean? We we have this idea that the, oh, the gospel made me give up drinking. Well, that doesn't mean that you're in Christ. That wasn't the full intent of the gospel was for you to give up drinking. That's not what was even intended there. But we also see that even those who simply reform their lives, they might even start attending church. They might even they might even serve in ministries. We have this idea that every single person in a church is converted. I mean, you really have to consider and think that we know that Jesus' parables about the wheat and the tares, we know he gives examples of people who claim to be in Christ, but they're not really in Christ, that we often find ourselves shocked when someone we thought was a believer actually turns out to not be. Sadly, sometimes we see the scandals we see, and I'm not going to touch a lot on this today, but we see scandals and we think, we automatically assume, how could that believer have fallen that way? Maybe they never were a believer. You say, how could they, how could they not have been a believer? That was a pastor of the church. Folks, do you think it doesn't happen? Do you think a pastor could actually be an unbeliever? It's possible. There's some very smooth-talking people out there that talk circles around me who they sell you on what they say and how they say it. And yet, there is this idea that Jesus Himself said His own words in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. He says, But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but... Dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he's offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it. That's exactly what Jesus said in John 6. You've been drawn, you hear, you've been taught, you actually do which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Judas Iscariot is a perfect example of someone who had these common operations of spirit we talked about last week, but was not in the faith. But as he walked from town to town with Jesus and people identified, they said, there's one of the twelve. There's one of Jesus' closest disciples. And yet Jesus said, he's the devil. Number two, in way by application, spiritually dead people, whether they attend church or not, are dead until they are made alive by God's grace. There are church houses all over this country full of spiritually dead people. And I'm not talking about human excitement. I'm not talking about people walking on the pews and all the foolishness that goes with that. I'm just simply telling you they're spiritually dead. They hear the word and it does nothing. As a matter of fact, they become bored with it. They say, this is boring. This is boring to hear about Christ. This is boring, or the speaker's boring. He doesn't entertain us enough. Spiritually dead is not even being moved by the preciousness of who Christ is. If what Christ has done for you doesn't move you, doesn't have some influence on you, and I'm not talking in this emotionalism, there's something not right and say, well, I've heard this all my life. That's a warning sign, folks. That's a warning sign. If you've heard this all, this all your life and you're getting tired of hearing it, 
You know, I'm really tired of hearing about Jesus all the time. Why can't we have a, a special series on a topic that's relevant to my life today? There's nothing more relevant to your life than Jesus Christ and him crucified. You've got problems in your life. You don't need to hear about the problem. You need to hear about Christ. That's your problem. It's interesting. We're, we, are, we are interested in whatever interests us. We'll, we'll spend hours and hours upon something that's going to burn up without even thinking twice about it. But yet that's too long to talk about Christ. See, Christianity is not about outward behavior modification. It's about a new creation. It's not about cleaning you up. It's about a new creation. Number three, paragraph four in the confession is emphatic that unless people actively put their faith in Christ alone, they cannot be saved. Now, there are people that hate that, they hate that phrase. They cannot be saved. They say, what do you mean that person cannot be saved? Anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. I agree with that. But they're not interested in Christ unless he's drawn them. Biblically, there are those, and we have no idea why, the who, and the how. But in, in the plan of God, somewhere, some reason, there are those who cannot be saved. They're not going to be effectually drawn by the Father. They're going to have operations of the Spirit, but they're not going to be drawn, to the, they're not going to be drawn effectively and effectually. It is absolute heresy, and it should have no foothold in any church that claims the name of Christ to teach people that they can get to heaven by conscientiously following some religion or living a good life, and that alone. The Bible is clear that Christ is the only way. Christ is the only way to God, Acts 4-12. There is no other name in which man can be saved. No other name. Active faith in the person of Christ is required for salvation. John 17, verses 1 through 5. So what do we conclude? Unless people hear the gospel and are effectually drawn by Christ, they cannot be saved. So when someone says, you actually believe in a God that says people can't be saved, I started by telling you there's not a single person who's ever come to Christ for salvation who he's turned away. All we're saying is, is when you come to Christ, you were drawn by the Father and you came and you were not cast out. What's wrong with giving God all the glory for bringing you your regeneration? Because you remove every other thing. You remove every other speck of righteousness that you want to try when you give God all the glory for it. I can look around, I can dig around in my spiritual, spiritual chest of things that I've done for God and I keep looking around and I'm pushing things aside, I'm pushing them aside, and I'm looking for some form of righteousness that gains me acceptance with God and I find nothing. Use, a, use the example of those dresser drawers. We're, we're pulling them and we, we're finding, we got all these articles of spiritual righteousness, good things that we've done and yet none of those things give you the righteousness of Christ. It's coming to him absolutely empty and saying, the only reason I'm here is because I've been drawn by the Father. Again, some would say, humanly speaking, it's unfair. Every person should have a right to choose. Every person should have their, they should just be left to their own free will. And I'm telling you this morning, folks, if you leave every single person to their own free will, not a single soul comes to Christ ever. You said, I would. No, you wouldn't. And I'm not being a smart elk. You would not come apart from his drawing. 
Oh, if I read enough and read the Bible enough and went to church enough, you still wouldn't come. Not unless you're drawn by the Father. Again, we come to the same ending point. It's Christ. It's Christ. It's Christ. He, he is the one that does the work. Christ and his great mercy and compassion will in no wise cast out or reject any who come to him in repentance. He will not cast out any who come believing in him for the pardon of sin, trusting in him for eternal life. His words are emphatic. I will in no wise cast out. Casting out is not just casting out from heaven to hell. Please understand it's much deeper than, it's even deeper than that. When he said, I will not cast them out, he is saying, I will not cast them out of my compassion. I will not cast them out of my pity. I will not cast them out of my love. I will not cast them out of my affection. I will not cast them out of my prayer. And I will not cast them out from interceding for them. We, we oversimplify things so much. We're in a world today that just wants everything simple, quick, fast, and easy. That's the marks of this society. The quicker I can get it, the, fa the faster, the most efficient. He under we understand and he understands that it's more than just heaven or hell. We will never be cast out from his care. We will never be cast out from his protection. Going even deeper than that, I will never cast them out of my covenant that I made. I will never cast them out of my kingdom. Why? Because the very nature of Christ binds him. Listen to this. It binds him to the promises that have been made. Again, going right along with what we're going to talk about in a few minutes. God cannot lie. He's bound by the promises in which he's made. Think about Christ as our mediator. What Christ has done. And understand that all that we are and all that we have is in Christ. I hope that'll encourage us this morning. Um, this morning, I do want us, I want us to stay on schedule today, okay? So you'll, you'll forgive me. We're going we're gonna to skip the questions today. It's right at 1045. So we want to get started at 11 this morning. So let's go ahead and pray, and then you got, we can go ahead and take care of whatever you need to. We'll start right at 11 o'clock this morning, okay? And if, if there are questions, please come and talk to me. And we can talk after church for as long as you need to. We'll, we'll do whatever we need, okay? So let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you. We thank you for the great promises we've been reminded of this morning. And Lord, even as we hear these words and we read them again, those in Christ continue to be comforted. We continue just to be convicted of our own failures of when we, we fail to live for you as we should. Lord, I pray that today, that if there's any remaining, and I'm sure there is, spiritual pride in any one of us, I pray that the Spirit would drive it all away. Spiritual pride is such a dangerous thing. Lord, nothing we've heard today leads us to arrogance. None of it leads us to even think any higher of ourselves. This is not something that we have garnered for ourselves. It's not something you've given to us to, to treasure. It's something that should not be proclaimed and preached. But may we be found faithful in spreading the gospel to 
where you place us. Whether it's in our school or whether it's in our workplace, wherever we go in this world, may we truly live believing that Christ is indeed precious to us. Thank you for the drawing unto your Son. Lord, help us never be ashamed of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. May we not give in to the fads of the day, what appears to be gaining the most attention and seems the most appealing. May we simply remain steadfast and sure in the truth of your word. Father, we do pray now as we fellowship one with another and prepare our hearts for the worship service this morning, Father, that our minds would be upon you and that we would not be distracted from worshiping you in spirit and truth. We thank you for all these things, and it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen. All right, thank you.